Have a good life. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Really, really happy. It's over. Armed man died, gone. And we went from hope. Okay. Now we're officially in healing. And my work here is done. I'm taking this time to officially withdraw myself from the organizing space because us as organizers are no longer needed. The chucks have been worn. The pearls have been put on. The blue checks are celebrating. The champagne is being poured all around the nation. The healing has begun, and we could move forward. So, America, goodbye from me and to all the other organizers. Our work here is done. So, please, let's start the show. Vic, I'm really sorry to see you go, man. Like you did so much good work and now we're just going to have to, we're going to have to sit around and do nothing without you. Uh, You don't have anything else to do either. It's all done. I I got, I got a cat to feed, man. I gotta, I gotta work. Like I got, I got, I did some ET shopping. I got my, my mean, my mean new deal shirt. Cause we're leaving the period of the green new deal. It's now the mean new deal. All done. It's a new paradigm shift. New paradigm shift, right? It is, but that was just that was a deeply weird day. Everything from Trump walking off the stage to YMCA, which we can't play because we'll catch a copyright strike for like, you know, showing the news because it's copyrighted material. Uh so yeah, let's uh y- you want to pull in our guests? All right. Who do we got first? So first up, we got Mike Dickerson. He's a member of Koreatown for All, or K-Town for All, as they're known around the uh, the interwebs, and also is a writer for Knock LA. So we're going to talk to him about some uh, gig economy and, like, worker issues. Uh, he's written a couple of really good pieces for Knock lately. So uh, let's pull in Mike and get to chatting. Hey, Hi, Mike, guys. how you doing? Pretty Hello. good. How about you guys? Yeah, Not- chilling. Champagne flowing. I'm good. Excellent. Yeah. It planted out all of my post-inauguration brunches. <laughs> That's the important thing to be doing right now. Nothing else going on, right? Nope. Yeah, exactly. So um, I wanted to start off. Uh, you've written a couple of really good pieces for uh, Knock recently that have to do with like Prop 22 and gig workers and specifically delivery drivers. I was hoping you could like talk a little bit about that for the audience, like let them know what you've been working on, what you've been kind of exploring around L.A. as we like enter deeper into the Prop 22 reality. Yeah, so um, – Prop 22 has really changed a lot of things for a lot of different workers. Um, And that's kind of where I've been coming at this lately, right? So uh, it's on the one hand, obviously represents a lot of change for workers who are in that gig economy space, right? If they're working for DoorDash, if they're working for Uber, uh, it's really beginning to change some of the conditions there. And we can talk about specifics a little more later, but Uh, At the same time, it's also really much faster than we expected impacting people who are full employees, right? And so, you know, where kind of this started 
was actually a tweet from a friend of mine that he had talked to his delivery driver from Vons who told him that all the drivers were getting fired. And, you know, after looking into this a little more, uh, what's actually happening is that Vons is entering into a contract with DoorDash uh, that replaces their existing employee-based infrastructure for Southern California, uh, not so much in Northern California, where there are actual unions protecting the employees who are delivery drivers. Uh, but in Southern California, they're they're being replaced with gig workers. Um, and it's something that a lot of the folks in the union world are really worried about, right? There are delivery drivers in all sorts of industries, um, and especially just, you know, the parcel delivery industry. A lot of those people who are still employed are suddenly fearing that Prop 22 and similar laws that are potentially coming in other states will really make it easy for companies to lay them off and replace them with a cheaper option and really just turn these jobs into gigs. So this seems to be the beginning here in California. What else is going on to spread this to the country? Um, So California is really kind of the model here. You know, Prop 22 came about in the wake of AB5, which would have made it a lot harder for Uber and Lyft and DoorDash to continue operating the oh, way they are. Can you can you tell people a little about a little bit about AB5 if they're yeah. not like super familiar? Yeah. So so AB5 was passed a, a few years back um, with the aim of essentially standardizing the employment of a lot of drivers who are working what amount to hours wise full time jobs for Uber and Lyft. Um, to essentially force the companies to provide them the same kind of benefits and protections that anyone else who's an employee of a company in the state of California would have. They obviously didn't like this. Um, mm. They immediately sued. They never actually complied with the law. Um, and Prop 22 was the sort of end point of that battle, right? Prop 22 essentially undoes that change and adds on to that a, a whole bunch of different layers. It's very hard to overturn to this requirement of a seven-eighths vote in the legislature. It, uh, and it, more importantly, though, it really provides a, a clear legal framework that takes this quasi-legal gig economy that's always been sort of questionable and subject to all these lawsuits and gives those companies a way to do this and say, this is how our business works and there's nothing wrong with that. So what we're seeing now uh, you know, almost immediately, like literally the day this passed um, or the day the votes were counted, uh, you know, companies were talking about starting up similar campaigns. Uh, Illinois and New York have been talked about as early targets, obviously, Chicago and New York City being major markets for gig workers. Um, and so there's a real worry that this is going to spread nationwide. Um, similarly, in the very last days of the Trump administration, they uh, got around to pushing to, through a rule that they'd been they'd been working on for a while uh, that essentially makes it harder for workers to form a class action lawsuit and sue if they're misclassified. So essentially, misclassified workers would have to kind of go about challenging that on a you know one by one basis rather than being able to form a collective and and sue together. So um, this, which make it a lot harder. So this is something the Trump administration did. We know the orange man is bad. So naturally, Democrats are stepping up for workers to do something about it, right? So that's actually a, a hugely, uh, a huge discussion among Democrats coming in right now. Okay. You know, um, the the PRO Act uh, is really the, the central focus of a lot of labor organizing at the federal level right now. Uh, it's uh, a piece of legislation that passed the House in 2019, but didn't get taken up by the Senate. Um, it 
contains a number of provisions and is actually a pretty substantial uh, piece of legislation. It would have a really positive impact for the labor movement. It would make it a lot harder for companies to replace people with gig workers. Um, it would essentially end right to work laws at the state level. Um, so we're, we're talking really big changes that would reverse a lot of the damage that's been done to the labor movement over the years. Um, and so you have organized labor, you have the recently formed House Labor Caucus, right? Uh, and a lot of the sort of uh, union world Democrats who are very strongly in favor of getting this on the agenda as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, whether that will ultimately play out uh -huh. is a different question, right? Uh -huh. There are competing legislative priorities within the caucus, let's say. Um, and yeah. So I, I wanna ask, uh, when we're talking about how Prop 22 is affecting people, we're talking a lot about drivers and that's where a lot of your work has been focused. So I want to expand the scope a little bit and how are people in the gig economy feeling about people that aren't just drivers? Like, do they think I don't know that people in generally stable kind of work are going to be converted into gig drivers. Do people think this is going to be really siloed to just specific job descriptions? So, um, you know, delivery has been a real focus um, just because that's where a lot of those app companies are and where they started, you know, kind of emulating that Uber model. Um, and it's been an, a big moment for delivery anyway because of the pandemic, right? This kind of second force that's really accelerating this move. Right. Because not only are delivery drivers potentially being replaced, but also there are just more deliveries happening than there have ever been. Um, but we are also seeing that expand to other areas, like even just within the grocery store. Right. So a lot of the workers inside in, uh, you know, Albertsons and Bond stores are unionized and have actually fought to prevent this in their particular stores. Um, but there's a company called Jive. Uh, J-Y-V-E, um, and they are essentially attempting to bring gig work to uh, stocking shelves, right? So instead of employing, you know, your grocery store employees whose job it is to come in at a particular time and restock the shelves, uh, you can essentially, you know, sort of use this kind of last minute scheduling and as needed scheduling to pay some random person to come in and do five hours of work at a time. And, and again, it's really a process of taking things that, you know, might not be the best paying job in the world, but in a lot of cases are protected and provide a pretty good wage compared to other options. And, you know, replacing them with this really kind of hellish idea that people can sort of piece together a living and that stability just isn't important. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, that's it, one of my first jobs in this world was working for Wild Oats that was like an early competitor to Whole Foods. And I remember the the people who had come in and stocked the shelves at night, they made a good living. And that's one reason they worked those weird hours is it was a good, stable job. It paid pretty well. How are or, how are, are organizers and gig workers beginning to organize around this? Like, are there unions out there or groups of gig workers that are trying to fight this? Like, what's going on on that level? Yeah. So there are um, a couple different organizations in, in California. I believe the biggest one is Gig Workers Rising. Um, they're uh, essentially, you know, trying to imitate the tactics of unions. It's a little more complicated because they're not employees, but, you know, sort of organizing the the virtual shop floor. Right. And it was really interesting to to talk to the folks who are doing that work because on the one hand, it's, you know, these really big picture things, right? Like anyone in the labor movement is fighting for. But 
what I found really fascinating about the gig workers who are organizing is that there are just these very specific concerns that aren't getting addressed because there's this kind of lack of a real meaningful channel between labor and management. You know, and so like some of the things that came up were these really small issues, but that were really significant to people. So for example, you know, if you're a, a delivery worker who rides a bike and you get a restaurant order that contains a bunch of drinks, you're basically screwed. Those aren't going to survive the ride there. You're going to make a mess. You're going to have pissed off customers and your rating's going to get dinged and you can turn that down. But if you turn that down, that hurts your rating over time too. And you get fewer desirable jobs if you keep turning those down. And so, you know, even things like just being responsive to workers in terms of like changing UI functions in an app to make it easier to turn on and off certain kinds of things, right? Like taking order of drinks or, you know, if you're again on a bike, taking an order that's eight miles away is going to be a very difficult thing in a city. And so, you know, obviously like things like healthcare are very central and, you know, Prop 22's healthcare provisions have some pretty major issues that don't seem like they're going to solve the problems that get worse face. Um, you know, and obviously those kinds of things are, are sort of the most pressing thing, but there's this real lack of any communication. And it's very clear that, you know, beyond, I think, a lot of normal workplaces, gig workers just don't feel heard. And especially without that kind of connection of just being together as employees and kind of having that shared experience, I, I think that can make it even more alienating and, you know, make it feel even more like you're just out there in the wind and no one's paying attention to your concerns. Yeah, alienating is a good word for it. Like, there's that feeling of like, what am I doing wrong? How come I can't succeed through this app? It says I should be able to make money, but these little changes are making it that harder and harder. I used to drive for Lyft, and it was fine at the beginning, but then these weird incentives started kicking in, and you bite, you take the hook, and you end up making less, chasing these incentives, and then you realize like, what's going on here? Am I what did I do wrong again? Like, what's the deal here? Yeah, and, and that's really similar to the experience that a lot of gig workers are having right now as we're starting to see the sort of promised benefits that Prop 22 was sold on start to, to play out, right? So, you know, obviously the, the push for Prop 22 wasn't, you know, we're going to turn employees into gig workers, right? It was, we're going to give gig workers benefits. We're going to, you know, give them sort of a more regularized status that's going to ultimately help them. Uh, when I talked to folks for the article, you know, th there was a lot of skepticism about this. One of the big issues that came up again and again was this idea of sort of like downtime, right? So if you're doing deliveries, right, a lot of your time is going to be between jobs or, you know, sort of driving to the beginning of a job. Mm -hmm. And those things aren't necessarily counted in your pay. One of the things that Prop 22 did do is provide some additional pay for that, but it's still not counted towards your hours, and your hours are what determine if you qualify for healthcare subsidies. So you have to work 15 hours a week of active time to get the healthcare subsidy. Working 15 hours of active time could take anywhere between, you know, a little over 15 hours to dozens and dozens of hours, right? Like, that just depending on whether the time you work is busy, depending on whether your city is in a more serious lockdown, right? Like there are all sorts of variables that are determining your ability to achieve that goal that are completely external to the individual, you know? And so there are also other issues, for example, that the subsidy is based on an Obamacare bronze plan, which is not uh, the most generous not of health plan. plans, uh, yeah. if you oh. have any experience with the exchanges. Yeah, um, yeah. and so, you know, it's just that uh, 
kind of at, at every point here, it, it feels like people aren't quite seeing transparency, you know, and similarly with pay top up provisions, right? People are finding that, you know, between new fees and like changes in the hour or like changes in the, the kind of mile or minute rate mm-hmm. that even with the top up, they end up making exactly what they made before for the same amount of work. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so it just seems, it seems like at best, these benefits have kind of been a, a neutral thing and the, the costs we're already really seeing as we discussed. Yeah, I, I want to ask, as we're kind of like rounding towards the end of this segment, one of the big issues I see with Uber and Lyft and other, you know, these gig economy companies is they successfully displace the burden of capital overhead onto the workers. And that's going to make this even more crushing. For people in the gig economy right now, are they going to be able to surface and catch some air? Or do you think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better? It's it's hard to say, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that you know, the, the status quo kind of is what it is in a lot of ways, right? These companies have a lot of power and they've found a way to essentially f- determine the minimum of what they can pay people, right? And, you know, we've seen studies, right? We know how much wear and tear it's going to put on your car if you drive for Uber and how that doesn't get accounted for in the pay that you get. And, you know, that can often put you in a position of being sub-minimum wage depending on the hours you work and all of that, right? Um, You know, on the other hand, like, People need work. And so, you know, I think they're going to continue turning to these options because it's a way to, you know, very easily make a few dollars over the course of a day. Um, So, you know, I think for gig workers, I wouldn't expect things to change hugely, although I would expect more people to end up in that category. And I think that's really where a lot of the harm is coming from. You know, and I think that's really where uh, the, the organizing of gig workers is also going to be hugely important going forward. Right. Because. You know, ideally, we can turn to federal legislation, turn to the courts and find ways to reverse this trend of kind of the casualization of labor and of people uh, of jobs being shifted to independent contractors. But if that can't succeed, there's also a lot to be done to improve conditions for those people. And so, you know, if this trend continues and we see more and more people shifting to that status, I think you're going to see a lot of the locus of labor organizing shift in that direction. It does add a lot of challenges, which is probably going to weaken the movement in the short term for sure. Um, but I think there's also a lot of promise, um, and a lot of issues that are kind of coming out of that world that are not necessarily apparent or, you know, sort of salient to traditional unions. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to, I, I did want to say this is kind of a good hook for, for us, for, for when we bring you back, because I have this, this feeling that the housing crisis we're seeing in LA is not going to be alleviated by people not earning enough to pay their basics and that we're going to see kind of the impacts of this going on down the line for the next couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this and it's all sorts of other economic headwinds that, you know, especially people on the lower end of the income scale are facing right now. We know how kind of lopsided the current crisis we're in right now is and absolutely, you know, uh, continuing to immiserate uh, low income people is not going to fix our housing crisis for sure. Yeah. Well, hey, Mike, thank you very much for stopping by. We're going to bring you back at the end to talk with uh, our next guest, Daniel Lee. Uh, this was super informative, and I'm really looking forward to the next stuff you publish on on Knock. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. I guess. Hey, Daniel, how you doing? Daniel Lee. 
I'm I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I mean, the the inauguration is like okay. I'll take five minutes out to acknowledge that, and then I will get on with my incredibly oppressive life. Uh, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> welcome, welcome. So, Daniel, please tell us a little bit why you want to run for our California State Senate. Well, I, I think I'll couch it in these uh, terms. Like, uh, for the most part, there is like the California of our imaginations and everyone else's imaginations. And then there's the California of reality. And the California of our imaginations is the California where like everybody eats kale. There's a, you know, a taco truck on every corner. Um, unicorns run wild. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, every, everyone has like, uh, everyone can afford healthcare. Uh, the California of reality is uh, one where, you know, we have some of the worst income inequality in the country in Los Angeles County and in the Bay Area. Uh, we have people uh, that were asking to subsist on $30,000 a year, both as individuals and families. Uh, and those people are still having to pay uh, co-pays um, for their health insurance. Uh, and they're having to make this calculation between like, you know, paying their rent, paying their health insurance, or making sure the kids are fed. And that's, you know, not really a California I want to live in. Um, I'm, I'm really focused in my campaign on single-payer health care. Okay. Accelerating our uh, uh, response to the climate crisis and addressing um, environmental racism. Building enough housing to make sure that uh, people can actually afford housing. But making sure that housing is actually affordable and isn't like, you know, uh, luxury housing, uh, making sure that we have enough um, rental protections so that people are not displaced. You know, we need Costa Hawkins reform. We need to repeal it completely. We need Ellis Act reform so that people can't just buy buildings and, you know, displace people to build another building. Um, but, you know, uh, we also need to make some substantive steps when it comes to addressing what the uprisings of the last year told us that we need to do. Like, we need to address uh, racism and policing in particular, racism more generally, uh, but in in particular in policing, we need to get rid of qualified immunity, uh, and we need to have consequences, both for, you know, police officers who shoot or injure uh, unarmed people, but also for uh, corporations that pollute, mostly, mm -hmm in low-income and black and brown communities. It's not enough to have them, you know, participate in a cap-and-trade program. If there are no consequences, they're going to keep polluting and keep, you know, subject subjecting our people to, you know, um, uh, disease and death, basically, uh, without consequence, unless we, you know, add some fines, add some operational like uh, disabilities if you don't adhere uh, to our ordinances and our laws. Uh, so that is why I'm running, to really represent the people who are represented by rhetoric. Don't get me wrong. If if it was just rhetoric, like they are, oh, they are represented by mm -hmm. Like by every politician in California, but when it comes to action, when it comes to policy, when it comes to like actually putting forward a bill that would like substantively impact their material conditions, say it. Failing them, we're failing them. So that's why I'm running. 
I, so I wanted to ask, uh, this wouldn't be your first elected position. You're currently on the uh, city council of Culver City. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your experiences as a, a very local elected and like what you've been able to accomplish in Culver City. Sure, I'd, lo I'd love to talk about that. So currently uh, in December, my colleagues were, you know, nice enough to follow the uh, procedures and appoint me as vice mayor in Culver City. I was elected as uh, a city council member in 2018 as the first African-American city council member in Culver City's history over 100 years. Uh, usually when like I say that, I'm like, yay, but this should have happened in 1982. Um, so it's yeah. like, yay, but that should have happened like a long time ago. Uh, it should not be something that we're necessarily celebrating. It's something that we should acknowledge. Yes, this happened. This is great. Uh, similarly, in Culver City, we've only had five women uh, elected to the Culver City Council. And it's, you know, what I think we're at like 104 year history uh, as an incorporated city. Um, but one of the things that I, I like to underline for people is like, I ran on a platform that basically said, I would love to close the Inglewood oil field, the part that's in Culver City, only 10% is in Culver City. So the rest is an unincorporated LA County. So we need to work collaboratively to close down the rest of it. I told them I'm a renter. We don't have rent control in Culver City. I think we need it. That's what I'm running at. This part in particular was one of the things that people told me, hey, Daniel, if you want to rent, when? Don't talk about rent control. That was hard for me as a renter because I was like, this is uh, this is like 50, 60 percent of the reason that I'm running. Uh, so I ignored them. Uh, another, you know, thing that I, 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 I talked about, you know, more generally is, you know, public safety in Culver City. And I got my MSW from UCLA. Uh, I'm in the last semester of my doctorate program in social work at USC. Uh, All right. Two months after I was elected, I I met with our chief of police and I met with our fire chief and I told them, I want to bring uh, social workers into your departments to try to prevent some of the tragedies that we've seen around the country. And this was in June of 2018. This was prior to the uprisings. And even then, these two chiefs, much more conservative to me, you know, much more to the right, they agreed because... They both said that 40 to 50% of their calls were mental health or mental health related. Oh. And they said that within their practice, that's normal. That's normal for police and police organizations around the country. So, you know, my whole thing is like, well, why aren't we pushing this on a state level? Why aren't we pushing not just the pilot program, like, you know, one of my uh, uh, competitors has has been pushing um, for a while and her bill was vetoed by the, uh, the governor. But why aren't we requiring um, mobile crisis response or response by unarmed individuals who are trained in either medical or medical or mental health to respond uh, to instances that don't involve violence? Like for me, it's for, for for me it's rudimentary. It's like police complain all the time, and I've heard it from officers individually. We're not trained in this. We're not trained in this. We're not trained huh. in this. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. You're not trained. You shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. So why don't we let someone else do that? But yeah. when you say why doesn't someone else do that, 
you know, they recoil. They're like, yeah, but we want to we want to retain our power. We want to retain our, you know, ability to be the people who make the decisions about how this is approached, how the specific incidents is, you know, handled. We want to be the people who, you know, say that. And and I say no. I say, you know, we need state and countywide um, emergency response uh, procedures and ordinances that say, no, you're required to have a mental health team. You're required to have, you know, a, a physical health team. And those are the people that should be deployed when those are the calls that you get. When you deploy someone who is armed, they're more likely to use their arm. It doesn't mean like they're a good or a bad person, though obviously we operate within a white supremacist system that does uh, result in the uh, the injury or death of black and indigenous and Latino people across this country. Um, but, but that's that's not what that, that that's that 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 is that is not really the point there you know like the point is you should not be doing this job you know uh and and you know don't get me wrong as a mental health professional to some degree i know that those same biases exist within the mental health profession but mental health professionals are more qualified to address those immediate crises. Uh, and and I, I want to take the work that I've been doing in Culver City to the state level to have a more profound impact on people, both in a wider swath of Los Angeles County, but mm -hmm. on the level more generally. Okay. All right, all right. Expanding what you did in Culver City, with coming with some receipts, I love that. I love that, definitely. So um, you were talking about one of your opponents. So how do you feel about a rent moratorium? What's that major difference between you and your opponents? Uh, thank you for asking that question. One of my, um, well, probably my major opponent, Sydney Kumlager Dove, uh, assembly member, my assembly member actually, actually has been surprisingly reticent about coming out in favor of an extension of a rent moratorium. This in the context of uh, a worsening COVID crisis, particularly in Los Angeles County, where, you know, for the last few weeks to the few months, we've been the epicenter of the pandemic. Uh, we've, we've been a place where even if people want it to work, they cannot. You know, we, we've been a place, you know, where, you know, unemployment benefits have sort of fizzled out for a lot of people, uh, at least the, you know, extended unemployment benefits that provide a booster each week uh, over and above uh, the regular unemployment benefits. And in that context, you know, my opponent has delayed or equivocated, which I think is unconscionable, because in District 30 in particular, mm -hmm. we have a preponderance of low-income people. We have a preponderance of people who are not, for, for, for a person who's classified as low-income as an individual who qualifies for affordable housing, they have to make sixty to $66,000 a year. That's the, that's the top cap. In the 30th district, we have many, many people who subsist 
on $30,000 a year. We have many families who subsist on $40,000 a year for like three to four people. That's unconscionable. We need to extend our eviction moratorium so that those people are able to stay in their homes. But we need to do more than that. I've seen it on Knock LA, I've seen it in other places, and I completely agree. We found out a few weeks ago that we have a $15 billion plus budget surplus in California. This is unexpected. That surplus should be used to subsidize the rent and or mortgages of low income individuals so that they can stay in their homes. We already had a homelessness crisis prior to COVID-19. We had a homelessness crisis for the last decade, but it was particularly pronounced in the last two years. If we can't muster the courage to say that we want to keep the people in our community safe and housed, then we're just asking the pandemic to spread. We're asking people to be out and about during the day. We're asking people to be in places where there have been outbreaks like hardware stores, like stores like movie like, sets yeah movie sets senior senior facilities and the like and, and i think that's just unconscionable we should at least be able to say yes to extending the eviction moratorium but we should also be able to say we need to do more to protect the renters and homeowners in our state so that they are not out on the street and so that our homeless not homelessness crisis is not it, 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 it doesn't balloon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I have relatives um, from the East Coast and they talk to me all the time about the homelessness situation in California. Like, the eyes are on California and we have the capital, fifth largest economy on the planet, and now we have the surplus and right here, heal, heal. That's how we could really start to heal people. For real though. I'm being sarcastic at the beginning, but like some healing needs to happen to stop what's going on in this state right now. Well, well, and 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 uh, Tim, I think you were going to say something, but this, I I really wanted to say this: like when we're talking about healing, we need to talk about who is benefit who is benefited during the pandemic, and during the pandemic, Brilliant. the pandemics, the, the the billionaires in our state specifically mm. have benefited. Like, like Elon Musk was like the fifth or sixth richest person in the world before the pandemic started. Now he's number one. That's because of the pandemic. Bill Gates, uh, 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 I'm blanking on his, oh, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Like all, all of their, all of their bank accounts have increased exponentially, exponentially, and a tiny percentage even of that increase, not of their total wealth, a tiny percentage of that increase would keep our people housed. Yeah. And we're not asking for it. We need a millionaire's and billionaire's tax ongoing, but why don't we have an emergency tax that taxes that, that income earned during the pandemic while people are suffering yep. to keep people in their homes? Yeah. No, I, I that actually ties in perfectly to what I was going to ask because Culver City is becoming like a tech hub. It's becoming a hub for entertainment and for large multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar corporations in Apple's case. 
moving into Culver City and fundamentally reshaping it. What's that going to play out like across the rest of District 30 if we don't move to stop that? I think if we don't move to stop that, and I, I've I've actually gotten a lot of messages from people around uh, cumulus. Uh, in, in particular, now this is this is the development that happened on um, La Cienega Boulevard. It's really like right, right near like the well, we have two targets in Culver City, but right, right near the target that's on <laughs> La Cienega and Culver City. I don't know um, the one you're talking about. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a multi-story complex that you know is mixed use. Uh, but like the residential component is, is 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 high level, you know, and it's not really it's not really addressing the housing need that we have in Culver City. And the fear that I've heard around the district is cumulus will be duplicated across the district. It's one of the reasons that since about February or March of last year, I've been working with downtown Crenshaw in their effort to buy the Crenshaw Mall and convert it to a community land trust that will include both commercial and residential elements, but will be community controlled and the decisions about what happens to that land will be in the community's hands. I, I think that's a model that the state should adopt. I think far too often the state has been like, oh, we don't want people to have local control. We don't want people to have this or that. And in, in, in certain instances where basically affluent neighborhoods have said, no, we don't want affordable housing. No, you need to put this landfill in the poor, poor people's neighborhood. I agree. I agree. Like the state needs to come in and say, no, you need to bear some of the weight of this burden as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but. In, in, in the context of housing, in the context of, you know, an ongoing housing crisis in Los Angeles County, uh, we need to take steps towards more community control. And I'll wrap it up there. And I'm looking forward to having a, a more uh, robust conversation with Mike and you all. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a perfect way to tie the two of these together. So we're going to bring in uh, Mike Dickerson again. As we mentioned, he does a lot of work with uh, K-Town for All, which is an organizer and, and outreach group that works primarily around K-Town, but kind of all throughout CD4 and CD13. Hello, Hey, Jeremy. Mike. Uh, I will just correct that slightly. Uh, most of K-Town is located in CD10. There are oh, portions in CD13 and in CD4, uh, and we do dip into some areas beyond the boundaries of our technical neighborhood. But yeah, yeah. Uh, CD10 is mostly our home base. The, the gerrymandered map in my <laughs> head is kind of fuzzy at best. I'll say that. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to talk really quickly with you as somebody who works and does a lot of outreach with people who have, you know, been absolutely failed by our housing system. What kind of promise do like community land trusts and these sort of more equitable ways of dealing with housing hold for the people you work with? Um. You know, I, I think community land trusts are an incredibly good model uh, to continue building on. It's one of the areas where we've had a lot of success. You know, I think it's it's got a lot of similarities to to public housing, but is a easier to get built or to maintain. Right. Since a lot of it is about sort of resident led preservation. You know, I think we've seen really good examples of that. Uh, I know in Northern California, in particular in Oakland, there's been a lot of success with their community land trust. Um, you know, I do think for a lot of that, that's more about preserving uh, housing for people who are currently housed. 
you know, I do think that's also something we need to expand, right? Because one of the big problems in our, our homelessness system and or our housing problems in LA are that we continue to have more people coming into to homelessness than are exiting it, right? We're actually doing a lot to get people out of homelessness. Unfortunately, it's not at the level of even maintaining. And so, you know, I think if we can do anything like a community land trust to stop more people from losing their housing, that's uh, probably the best thing we can do. And one of the biggest things that's going to stop that inflow and ultimately reduce the number of people who are experiencing homelessness. Yeah, which is which is why from from my perspective, it's like it, it it's policies like community land trust in conjunction with much, much stronger renter protections, uh, you know, like in Culver City, you know, um, we we passed a rent freeze uh, in 2018. And then in 2019, we can we we had a number of, uh, a series of meetings to talk about permanent rent control, and we ended up having permanent rent control that was capped and tied to the CPI, uh, the Consumer Price Index. Uh, and, and, and you know, for the most part, for you know most of our lives, and I figure all of you are close to my age. I'm 40, 41, going to be 42 soon. Um, that, that's been around like 3%. No, no, no. Daniel, th this is LA. You're not supposed to tell anyone how old you are. I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not in, I'm not in the Screen Actors Guild anymore. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but like, you know, for, for most people that's for, during most times that's around like about 3%, uh, at the state level, AB 1482, that's 8%. 8% is just not doable for most families. 8% is not doable for most individuals. 8% is I'm moving and I'm moving into my friend's living room. Or I, I'm asking my friend who has a one-bedroom if they would like to have a two-bedroom. That is what that means. We need stricter protections uh, when it comes to renters in conjunction with things like community land trusts that keep housing affordable for more than like a 25 or 50 year period, which is, you know, what developers usually get, you know, when they do some type of affordable, affordable housing agreement. So new affordable housing tied to land trusts. Is that what I'm sort of hearing? Interesting. I, I like. Yeah. And I, oh, go ahead. No, I really do think we need to tie those two things together. Like, like a, a lot of times we've seen these policies come up in a vacuum where uh -huh. it's like, we need a community land trust, but it's like, we need a community land trust with rent control. Uh, with, you know, with really strong tenant protections, with organized tenants, and with expanded social housing, which is one of the other things that I think, you know, we've heard, you know, inklings on on the L.A. City Council level, uh, but we need to hear a whole lot more of that coming from the state level. There's been this, like, stigma around government housing for a long time, but we know that other countries do it and do it well, you know? It's the same thing with healthcare. Other countries do it and do it well. Are we the greatest of the great and can't like do things that people got, you know, their hands around in 1962? Like, are, are we that dumb? I don't think we are. Yeah. Oh, no, no, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. <laughs> not all of yeah. us. And I, I think that's exactly right, too. You know, I, it's definitely our experience in the work we do at K Town for All that. You know, we very quickly came to the realization that, you know, sort of project by project approaches were, were not going to get a lot done. You know, like 
yeah, every time we add 30 or 70 beds or 100 units, that's great. That's important. Those are things we absolutely need. But when that conversation and those projects are disconnected from that broader conversation about tenants' rights, about housing costs, about you know affordability, about preserving our affordable housing stock, about how we distribute housing across different neighborhoods, right? Those are all part of the conversation about homelessness. And so, yeah, I 100% agree. It's it's you know we really have to be having this more as a, a conversation about the systemic issues in housing and how these different policies are all contributing to the solution rather than sort of treating those as isolated conversations, right? Because yesterday's tenant with a problem is today's homeless person with a problem. Exactly. I, yeah, I want to ask, um, so one of the things we're kind of dancing around, because um, it's hard to, to talk about, is is the problem on our streets stretches across city borders, across district borders. It's a, a statewide problem. So what do we need to see in terms of coordination? Because here in LA County, we have, you know, CES, the coordinated entry system that was a, a good thing, but was not the like end all be all of solving this. So uh, I'm going to turn to you, Mike, and then we'll kick it up to Daniel. But just like, what is you as somebody who works on the street would like to see? And Daniel, what what do you think the state needs to be providing? Because we see blue ribbon commissions, they go freaking nowhere. We end up with people like not doing anything. Like, how do we start reversing that? Trend? A white paper of some sort or some bullshit. Yeah, you know, my my experience with this is is mostly in kind of the the city of LA and the county of LA, right? And you definitely see a lot of those issues of a lack of coordination, of different strategies, of different you know uh, approaches to enforcement, of different approaches to funding. And so there's kind of you know homelessness is a huge problem, right? You know one term on the city council is not going to get it solved, but one of the big barriers that can prevent even some of the smaller solutions from going forward is this lack of coordination and this kind of fighting about funding and financing that is constantly happening between the city and county, right? A big part of this ongoing lawsuit that's, uh, you know, generated uh, a lot of fun and interesting moments from Judge Carter um, on uh, on the circuit court uh, a big part of that is trying to essentially force the hand of the county and the city to get together and actually figure out how they're going to share funding. And that ends up impacting the, you know, operations of LASA, right, which is a joint city county agency with, you know, half of its directors appointed by each of those entities. And so, you know, it, when that coordination isn't happening across municipal lines, then you just are going to end up spending your wheels a lot. You're going to end up with a lot of redundant resource usage and you're not going to be able to, you know, use what we do have, which isn't enough to get the most out of it. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I would add, and, and one of the things that I sought out, um, because, you know, when I was just a normal Culver City citizen, uh, they did not return my calls or my emails. Uh, but once I became a, a, a Culver City uh, council member, they did. I, I, I proactively reached out uh, to Herb Wesson's office, to Mike Bonin's office, uh, to Paul Caress's office, because those are the districts that are most, um, you know, proximate to Culver City to see how we could coordinate because it is a regional issue. Uh, you know, bef in, in our initial conversations, what what is happening right now under the 405 at Sepulveda and Venice was not happening. Uh, it, 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 you know, there were maybe like a, a 10 or two 
you know, like, but there was not a demonstrated encampment on the north and the south like there is now. So I try to talk proactively about, you know, trying to say, hey, we have land in Culver City. Uh, we don't have as much as we used to. You have more resources than we do in L.A. City. If we were to provide land, could we collaborate on something? And, you know, we had some, you know, good conversations with uh, uh, Herb Wesson's office initially. I feel like they they chilled a little bit when I told him I endorsed Tali Mitchell for a supervisor. <laughs> but, you know, the, the initial conversations were pretty good. Uh, subsequently, possibly because of George, uh, Judge Carter, uh, um, We've been having uh, more substantive conversations with Mike Bonin's office about like ways in which we could try to collaboratively uh, present uh, housing options to people who are encamped under the 405 because they are encamped because they have protection. It's not shelter, but it's like the in between between being out in the open and having shelter. You at least have protection from the rain and the sun, and that makes it ideal for people. And I can't begrudge someone who is unhoused for wanting to be there. Uh, the, 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 the point is, like, do we have a better option for them available? And if we don't, what are we doing to make a better option available in the near future? And that's what we're trying to work towards. You know, we've talked about, like, you know, uh, tiny houses uh, uh, built on crates. We've talked about, like, tiny houses more generally that you can buy off Amazon, you know. And, and, and a lot of the, 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 the reason that we're not completely moving forward is, like, the connections to, like, sewage um, and, and, and other things and services that, like, really sort of, complete the puzzle like housing is one thing yeah. uh, housing first definitely but people need to be connected to services you know a lot of the people that i've spoken to on a regular basis and i live around the corner from the sepulveda and venice encampment they want to work they don't care you know other people you know they're dealing with addiction but they you know they aren't I mean, I go there all the time. I don't want to be apoplectic about it, but like, you know, they they do not endanger me. Uh, I go there all the time. They say hello. They might not remember my name if I remember theirs. Uh, but, you know, they are not dangerous people. They are people who want to survive. They are people who want a chance. They are people who want to live. Uh, and our system has not provided the resources to make that happen. Yeah. And it's just a matter of we know we have the resources in this state. That's a fact. And it's how we organize those resources to help out all the workers who literally make up the state, because without us working, there is nothing. And that's the socialist rant to go off on. Uh, Mike, I just want to ask you about the convention center plan that KDL is pushing. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, so uh, it's a collaboration between Kevin DeLeon in uh, CD14 and um, Currendy Price, uh, another city council member. They are kind of the two whose districts are surrounding the convention center. Um, so the the proposal passed on Tuesday. It doesn't actually start any sort of process of, of getting this open. What it does is it requests a 30-day report back from a number of departments, you know, from LASA, from the Department of Conventions and Tourism that has a lot of authority over the convention center, um, to essentially report on the feasibility of this. Um, this was a plan that kind of originally surfaced back in November or December. Uh, it went through committee and then kind of sat for a bit. Um, at the time, 
the Department of Tour, uh, Conventions and Tourism Development was pretty clear on its perspective on this, which is basically it's going to be extremely expensive. Even just like turning the lights and the you know air and or heat on at the convention center is an incredibly expensive thing to do, right? So we're we're talking very quickly skyrocketing costs. Um, and more importantly, at least in terms of ultimate costs here, is that at some point the convention center is going to reopen for conventions, right? We've got the vaccine coming now, you know, ideally sooner rather than later, right? You know, I don't have any particular desire to go to a convention, but if the convention center is open, then things are probably going a little bit better than they are now. Um, and so, you know, if a 30-day report back occurs towards the end of February and then you spend the time to scale up this shelter and maybe, you know, if we do a, you know, sort of full, like, full-on FEMA-like response, we can maybe get it up in March, right? And then how long until the convention center reopens? Just a few more months, right? And so it's a lot being put into this plan that seems very large, but once you start to sort of look at the logistics of it, it gets a little bit more questionable. Um, it's really following on the heels of something that San Diego did much earlier in the pandemic um, at a time when it was perhaps a more useful and logistically feasible thing to do, which was opening their convention center. It's had some issues, especially recently since the Thanksgiving surge. Uh, it had a huge number of COVID cases. Prior to that, it had actually been doing pretty well compared to a lot of congregate shelters. Um, and they have gotten a lot of people into permanent housing through that, although a lot of that has happened through the state program with uh, Project Room Key and then Project Home Key money. Um, so the city of LA has actually also housed a lot of people through that program as well. So it's unclear to what extent the convention center is a causal link there. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a very different consideration at this point. Um, and, and more importantly, it just, it, it struck me as, as kind of a, a, an interesting place to see so much urgency, right? That this is talked about as the sort of emergency measure, which to be fair, has already sat on a legislative desk for two months before <laughs> even getting to the 30 day report back, which kind of calls into the question the urgency, um, but you just don't see this urgency with the sort of like day to day things, right? Like, you know, opening units of permanent housing is way more valuable in some ways than three months of convention center space. Right. With you know, and people who for unhoused people who die a day in LA County. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think were they to open it, I am sure there are people who would take advantage of that, right? People are facing a really tough choice between going to shelters that right now are facing outbreaks even worse than the rest of us are, right? Or remaining outside. And it's winter. We're expecting a lot of rain coming soon. There are a lot of really hard choices for people to make. And shelters are at capacity. They're creating sort of, you know, uh, de facto wards for infected patients because, the rooms the city set aside for people to quarantine who don't have a place to do so are full. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want to be too damning towards it. Right. Cause like I get why opening a shelter like this does have a lot of benefits, but I, I get suspicious when it's in a place that's so prominent that doesn't seem to have been chosen for being logistically the best site so much as it is one that will get headlines. Okay, Mike, Mike, you don't have to say it. I'll say it. It stinks. It's shady as fuck. Like, it's, it's not right. Like, this is the same council that was trading bags of cash. Like, yo, something's not right. I mean, yeah, no, no. I, no, exactly. Like, go go on, Mike. Mike, I'm just saying I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think you have to you have to get to the point of money changing hands or anything to explain why this might be appealing, right? You got a lot of city council members who are going to be up for re-election after a little bit and would very much like to give their constituents the impression that they're really making big moves on homelessness. Or and 
you know, oh, that's true, certainly, or mayor, although, uh, yeah, okay, given Katie Loon is, uh, you know, pushing this, definitely mayor. Um, but it it's more the appearance of a big move than it is actually something substantial, you know? I, I think if we were going to talk about opening a massive congregate shelter that would actually permanently function and have a very different kind of cost structure and a very different you know, profile, that'd be a different conversation. There's obviously still issues with congregate shelters versus other strategies, but that's a conversation worth having. When we're talking about this, it just really appears to be more of a, a political stunt aimed at getting an LA Times headline more than it is at actually getting anyone to actually live at the convention center in the near future. Yeah. Well, so uh, we're, we're uh, about out of time right now, but I wanted to ask you both just like one last kind of wrap up question. It's now morning in America again. Joe Biden has has taken over. Glorious new day. What are your actual hopes for like the next hundred days? What do you really want to see? And Daniel, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, okay. I, I wish I had a little more time to prepare for that one, but like uh, we we put people on the spot here. <laughs> completely fine. Completely fine. Every politician should be prepared to do that. Uh, but my my hope is that the people who have been actively uh, showing up and protesting Trump for the last four years, continue to show up and protest Biden. Uh, and, and, and for me, you know, I, I don't mean to equate them or say that they are in any way the same, um, but they are both, um, you know, believers in American empire. You know, they are, they are, they are believers uh, in, 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 in this myth of American exceptionalism that says, if you don't succeed, it's your fault. Like, I want people to protest to say, that's not true. This is your fault. This is the system's fault. This is, this is designed. We are designed to not have as many resources as other folks. We're designed, you know... To, to be at a strategic disadvantage. And you need to fix that if you want us to have any type of enthusiasm for you at all. You need to address the climate crisis now. Signing back onto the Paris Accord is not enough. Uh, passing uh, the Lent bill that the Democrats pushed last year around police reform is not enough. It is not enough. It is not enough. Uh, you know, expanding Obamacare uh, to, 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 to provide more co-pays to more people, that's not enough. We need single-payer health care. You know, uh, I, I, we need people in the streets to say, we're tired. We're tired of asking for things that other democracies of our level had in 1962. We're, we're tired of protesting for things that we should have had. We're tired of electing people like me as the first African-American in a city, you know, where I should have been the first African-American in 1977. We're tired of that shit. Like, we want to see more. We want to see actual advancement. We want to see actual progress. We don't want to see, you know, diversity. We don't want to see, you know... A woman in this position, a, you know, a, a queer person in this position, you know, like, you know, a, a black man in this position. We want to see progress that benefits all and does not focus on individuals. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to take the opposite approach because I agree with all of that, but uh, I'm not going to say it as well as our uh, our resident politician on this panel. Um, so, you know, obviously 
all of those things very important. But, you know, like you guys, uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about the city of L.A. and our local government. And the thing that terrifies me um, when we're all having these conversations about the things the city ought to be doing and, you know, we know what some of these answers are and we are fighting to get the people in place who can, you know, make those policies. But our city is also in a very real and very massive revenue crisis, like a lot of municipalities around the country, like a lot of states. Um, you know, our tax structure took a real hit from all of the economic impact of COVID. And so, you know, I, I definitely would in a lot of ways, maybe rather see Medicare for all happen suddenly. But, you know, in a, in a very sort of small, immediate, realistic sense, I, I think aid to state and local governments needs to be a really high priority. Um, we need to, to close the holes in our budget. We're cutting jobs from the city. And what that ultimately means is worse services. It means that people who need help from the city aren't going to get it. It means that your trash service is going to get worse. It means that all of these little things are just going to get a little bit worse. You know, it won't necessarily fall apart overnight, but without those things, you know, working at the base level, it's really hard to then expand the things that we need to expand to solve these big problems like homelessness, like our environmental issues, like our transportation problems. Well said, well said, slowly, little by little. The alienation grows and grows and grows. Mm, good times. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. That was an amazing conversation, and I'm really excited to see what you all do. Uh, Daniel, real quick, where can people check you out online? You can go to danielwaynelee.com. I'm going to spell it out real quick, but I'm usually pretty good at saying it. D-A-N-I-E-L-W-A-Y-N-E-L-E-E.com. And there you can find a donate link and a link to volunteer and find out more about my platform. Uh, we're trying to call as many people as possible. We would love to have you call this weekend. If you're not into calling, we're looking for text bankers as well. And of course, you know, you can always email people and share on social media uh, things about our um, campaign and, you know, videos like this and interviews like this that uh, provide people with a broader scope of what we stand for. And we can we can watch some uh, funny people raising some money for you on Saturday, right? Yes, yes, you can. Yes, you can. Uh, my Instagram is uh, the Daniel Wayne Lee, uh, but uh, I, I was just at uh, a uh, uh, Instagram live uh, with Yasir Lester right before coming to this interview, uh, and he and I think about seven or eight other comedians who are progressive and kick ass uh, are going to do a fundraiser for me this Saturday. Hopefully, first of two or three. Uh, nice. <laughs> uh, and and it, very low uh, entry. Uh, please come. Uh, please laugh with us as we work towards a better Los Angeles and a better California for all of us. Excellent. Thank you both so much, Mike. Uh, thank you for everything you do. I uh, can't wait to read more of what you're writing. I'm going to let the both of you get back to your very busy, very important lives. Uh, and the rest of us all are going to we're all going to plan for brunch tomorrow. Right, Vic? We're on for brunch. Yes. Celebrating the new day in America. Excellent. Endless mimosas on me. Nice. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Ah, so good, Vic. I love these shows. Yeah, good, good, good therapy. Good to talk yeah. to some real folks doing real things. Also, you know, we almost forgot. We forgot to do this at the head. We have new intro music. Where Ooh. did that come from? Uh, over the pandemic, the homies got together and we've been making music. And new album coming out soon. This is a single you could 
check us out on Bandcamp. Sun Chemist on Bandcamp. Go check it out. Say what's up. Get some music. Yeah. Support your local creatives. Uh, and thank you all for joining us uh, again this week. Uh, we're probably going to kick this one out on the podcast. We're kind of getting into the uh, habit of doing that. We're going to have another show in two weeks. So February 3rd, we're going to have Rideshare Drivers United, and we're going to have the Bus Riders Union on. Talk about non-traditional unions. So we'll do, be doing some gig stuff, but also like what it's like to organize people who ride buses and trains in the city. Because like we deserve to be organized too, those of us who don't own BMWs. And I know it seems like we're not there, but there's a lot of us. We are legion. Yes, yes. There's more of us than them, you know? <laughs> uh, well, Vic, thank you so much again. Have yourself a, a great night. Enjoy your brunch. <laughs> Later, Tim. Enjoy that champagne. <laughs>